America is back. Diplomacy is back. Well, you know what? Okay. Present everywhere, from Lithuania to the Sahel, to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Lebanon. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Ola Oliker, speaking to you from Brussels for the final episode of this season before we break for the summer. And I'm your co-host, Alyssa Jobson, also speaking from Brussels. So we have been talking a lot about Ukraine in this season of War and Peace because, well, Ukraine is at war, although it started the season of peace, and because the war in Ukraine is so critical to European and global security. So as we close out the season, Alyssa and I wanted to give you the opportunity to listen into a conversation with two of our crisis group colleagues who have recently returned from a research trip in Ukraine. So really pleased to welcome back to War and Peace, Alyssa de Carbonell, our Deputy Program Director for Europe and Central Asia, and Simon Schlegel, our Senior Analyst for Ukraine. They'll be sharing their personal experiences on the ground in Kiev and Western Ukraine, including their take on the state of the country after four months of war, the sense of the mood amongst Ukrainians, and they'll also be updating us on what they learned about humanitarian aid provision and internal displacement. Alyssa, Simon, great to have you both on the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Can you tell us a little bit about where you went, a little bit about the trip? You were together for a bit and then you went in different directions. So we've entered Ukraine from Poland. We met in Warsaw and then went to a city close to the border called Przemysl. That's a city that has a direct train connection to Lviv in Western Ukraine. And we actually took the morning train from Przemysl and had to stand in line outside the customs building where a lot of refugees from Poland were now going back. And the train was quite full, the line was quite long. There was a British reporting team interviewing women and their little children who were standing in line with us about their motives of going back. And the border crossing went quite smoothly. We showed our passports at the Polish border and then the Ukrainian border guards just checked us in the train. So there was really no special precautions. So we went to Lviv and then we spent some time in Lviv from where we traveled on to a small town called Halic, which is in Ivano-Frankivsk region. We also went to the capital of that region, Ivano-Frankivsk itself. And we also traveled to another small town in Western Ukraine called Drohobych to really also get a feel how the situation was outside of regional capitals. And Alyssa, you went on to Kiev. Yes, I took the train on to Kiev from Ivano-Frankivsk, just an overnight train. Trains are still working brilliantly. I've spent many times, many, many nights in trains, but um, nothing has changed very much there. I had a bit more of an adventure on the way back. I left on an overnight train, let's say, from Kyiv and woke up very near the Polish border with everybody looking at their phones because there had been quite a number of air sirens. I think Simon was in a bomb shelter at the time before taking the bus from where he was in Western Ukraine. In any case, everybody was looking at their phones and we happened to be stopped for quite a long time because there was a problem on the tracks on the Polish side, which meant that after a while, we all piled out of the train and took marshutki and sort of taxis to the border. And so I had the experience not of the very swift and efficient passport checks on the train, but of standing in line with 
all the Ukrainians who were leaving. There was a pair of older women who were going on vacation in the Baltic states, but for the most part, people were fleeing the conflict. There was a woman from Kherson who was on her way to Texas to where her brother has been living. There were people from Odessa, but mainly a wave of people who had just managed to leave or be evacuated from cities like Kherson along what was the front line. So that was a four-hour crossing at the border under the baking sun. I think people had much worse experiences in the past couple of months, but certainly you can still feel people really leaving everything behind, coming with their dog, their bag, and that's it. You've both spent a lot of time in Ukraine. You know the country well. What struck you most about the country? How have things changed since the Russian invasion? My first impression was actually how little had changed and how well normal things like traffic and shops were working. It's more the smaller details that you see. It's, for example, that administrative buildings and train stations and bus stations are sandbagged and there are these self-made anti-tank hedgehogs outside of administrative buildings and their soldiers, armed soldiers, guarding all these places, also in and out of major cities and at major road crosses, there would be checkpoints, but not really checks. So at the moment, traffic flows quite freely through this. And as long as there's no suspicion or alarm at that moment, uh, people are just being left through these places. Yeah, I think I would just add on what Simon said, especially in Lviv and in Western Ukraine, there is a feeling of sort of life being as it was. And maybe there's not as many tourists as before, but then you do get these glimpses of life. And I remember walking down the street, it was the first day we were there and we walked by uh, two men in military fatigues and one of them was an amputee. I don't know what the story was there. We didn't stop to talk to them, but you do see men lining up outside of military recruitment offices. Then we were going to talk to people in shelters, and it's quite striking. There are still people in Western Ukraine who are in these big gyms living all together, making their beds in a boxing arena or wherever they can find a bit of privacy. So you don't have to look very far to see the conflict even in Western Ukraine. In Kiev, it's I think, even more present. But Alyssa, you started to tell us a little bit about some of the stories you heard on the train, but you talked to a number of Ukrainians who'd been displaced within the country. Simon, can you tell us some of the stories you heard? So the very first place that we actually went to in Lviv was the acting hall of a middle school or a college that had been reused as a warehouse for humanitarian aid, where there were tons of food piled up on pallets that were hygiene products like shampoo, like there was an entire store full of those waiting to be delivered to people in need. And the people who ran this were students from that school, but also IDPs themselves. There was one woman that we spoke to who was about to become uh, one of the managers of that warehouse who had been working as a manager for a French supermarket chain, Auchan, that has stores in Ukraine. And she had been to Lviv only once before on a training and when she arrived there from Kharkiv Oblast, very early phases of the invasion, she didn't know where to go. And the only place that she knew was this Oshon supermarket. And the manager there let her stay in the meeting room for one night. And then the next day she went to this very warehouse to seek help. And she started to help there for free. And now uh, as this group has accessed some funding, they can actually keep working there 
she and her husband as aid workers. And that's one of the stories that kind of shows the normalization of these very ad hoc arrangements that were very typical for the early response and that are now being sort of put in a more solid basis and slowly many people finding their places in displacement. So you're telling a story of people sort of recognizing that what had seemed like a near-term crisis, or maybe just in the near term, you just respond to what's coming at you, to settling into a new kind of existence. Is that right? Absolutely, yes. I think most people do come to terms with this being a new normal and that their homes, especially if they are in Donbass or in the East, that they're probably not going back soon. And there is also a little bit of relaxation in these cities that have been very overcrowded in uh, March and April, because people are going back to Kiev and to northern Ukraine, where it is more safe now. It's still not entirely safe, but it's safer. So people can go out of the most, at least precarious circumstances, go back to their homes. And there is a bit more room for those who really have nowhere else to go. And this is true for the housing situation, but it's also true for the labor market. And there are, for some people, they're opening up opportunities. Others are still too vulnerable and sometimes are also too traumatized to just find their place. But those people who have come to terms with the reality, they also try to make arrangements in the places where they have ended up. And what are the implications of this being a long-term situation? The war looks like it's going to be here for the long term. I think people are beginning to understand that. So how has that affected the mood of Ukrainians? How are they taking the fact that they are going to be in this situation, not just for a few months, but potentially for many years? I think there's something to say about, especially the displaced people that we were speaking to, it doesn't take very long for people to crumble into tears. Often women with several children who are living in quite precarious situations and who don't have a home to go back to. Whether I spoke to a couple of people from Lysychonsk in one of the shelters, and they really can't go back. On top of that, for some reason, many people have a father, a husband, or somebody who stayed behind. Either they stayed behind because they couldn't travel or they stayed behind to guard the house because they didn't believe that it would be that kind of situation. And so many of them have lost touch with relatives who are now living under Russian-occupied territory, and they just have no idea if they're alive or not. Some of them sometimes have cell coverage if they go to certain places. So those people just can't imagine going back. They just no, but I don't know if their thoughts have yet turned to finding jobs. Some of them, the more enterprising, have begun working in volunteer work or want to buy a house and want to get jobs as quickly as possible. But especially women with several children, they're not in a situation of being able to do that. So I think for them, it's quite stark that the world has changed and they will never have the life they had before, especially if they're not planning on going abroad and trying to take advantage of some of the more generous opportunities sometimes that there have been um, put in place for refugees in some of the neighboring countries, then often they don't have documents or whatnot to be able to do that, or their husbands are fighting or whatnot, then they're kind of stuck in this halfway zone. And a lot of people were concerned because schools are meant to reopen in September. And a lot of people were concerned that they were going to be kicked out of the schools and dormitories and places they were living in and had no idea where they were going to go because they've been hearing that from authorities. And so they're really quite nervous about where they're going to live in a month's time. Much less people, I think, who have started to go back 
to places that were newly liberated or that are in north of Kiev, like Chernihiv and these areas, they're going back to damaged homes and worrying about how they're going to even heat the house in the winter. They don't have basic necessities, water, these kinds of things. So for these kinds of people, the situation is really stark. And I think if you go to somewhere like Kiev, certainly all of the volunteers that we spoke with, with Simon, who are working to help the millions of displaced people or working to get support for the military or do medical aid or whatnot, are very, they're at a point of exhaustion now after four months of devastating conflict. And they're very aware of just the scale of the needs and the fact that there's no end to it anytime soon. So I think in conversation after conversation that I had, and Simon can give his own impression, it was really a kind of taking stock of this is going to be a really long haul. Even if the war ended tomorrow, the needs are colossal, right? And then if you look at some of the things like the World Bank, I think has predicted that depending on how long the war lasts, the number of people living under the poverty line in Ukraine is going to increase from 18% to 70% by the end of the year. This is a country whose economy is really struggling and where it's hard for people not to realize that the consequences are going to be there for decades, even if the fighting stops tomorrow. War and Peace a podcast by the International Crisis Group. You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. And Elissa and I are talking to our colleagues, Alyssa de Carbonell and Simon Schlegel, about their recent visit to Ukraine. So we're talking a lot about Ukrainians, but one of the things you were looking at was humanitarian assistance issues. You also spoke a good deal to representatives of various international organizations, international NGOs, and foreign governments who are working in Ukraine. Did you notice uh, any real gap between their attitudes and those of Ukrainians? That's a very good question. I'm sure Simon can add to this, but Ukrainians in general, especially the volunteers that we were speaking to who have been working in the East, who have been working in precarious areas, who have been working nonstop approaching sort of burnout, organizing things from bomb shelters in the middle of the night, trying to send packages via the post, trying to crowdfund for the military, whatever they're doing. There is a very critical attitude towards what they perceive as the slow response of the humanitarian community and their lack of presence in the more dangerous areas of the country where there is the greatest need. There's all sorts of potential reasons for that. And I do think that international humanitarian actors are starting to move. But there is a feeling among a lot of the volunteers and activists that I spoke with, and that Simone also spoke with, of being left alone in the first months of the crisis, and not having the sort of emergency aid and support that they expected, and they may have had high expectations, but from the international community. Again, I think that's changing now. But that was a quite a surprising for me aspect of talking to these volunteers. For me, another side of that observation is also that if you speak to Ukrainian volunteers, there's no doubt in their mind, at least from the people that we've spoken to, that victory will come and that everything needs to be sacrificed for that. And that there is a time before the victory and that's going to be a struggle and then there's going to be a time 
after the victory, um, that's going to be the price for what you invest now. And so that there was very clearly this sense also from the experience of the last four months that without this huge effort from volunteers and from civil society, that not even the things that have been achieved militarily on the one hand so far, but also in the response to the displacement crisis, that this would not have been possible with this incredible mobilization and that people have assumed roles that they never knew they would assume in their lives. So many people feel at the same time sort of burned out because they've been working for free, working over time, and they've seen a lot of suffering. But at the same time, they also feel empowered and very confident that victory will come. Whereas if you speak to international experts who are just setting up shop, they see how challenging this is going to be, how the numbers are just staggering, how the needs are still very much uncovered and it's quite uncertain how well they're going to be covered in the future. And they see this as a long-term response that hasn't a clear outcome, right? That there's no clear victory in the end, no clear signs of this victory coming. For me, it was the starkest sort of difference of speaking to these two groups. And what about the diplomatic community in Kiev? How are they responding? And to what extent is there a diplomatic community in Kiev now? So I think in terms of the diplomatic community, many people still haven't returned. Some ambassadors from some EU countries have, of course, and there are very few exceptions of people who have stayed throughout. But for the most part, it is really still a country at war. And the diplomatic representations that are there are really pared down to what they were in the past. I had this reflection when I was there because I was there at the same moment that the European Council offered Ukraine EU candidacy status, which was a huge deal and with some of the people that I met with was really welcomed as a symbolic move that really meant a lot to them even though they knew that it was going to be maybe one day in the very far future something that might be in the works for their country. A lot of the volunteers, activists and politicians that I was meeting with came to be in their political, in their activist roles because of their experience on Maidan all those years ago when Yanukovych turning away from an agreement that would bring Ukraine closer to the EU towards a trade agreement with Russia was really seen as a betrayal. And there was this outpouring of passion. So it was really stark to be there at that time. And I had been thinking that in under any other circumstances, there would have been uh, celebrations on Maidan. There would have been maybe receptions at the embassies. There would have been at least diplomats and activists and others having drinks to celebrate this momentous occasion of their country moving closer to the European Union, coming under that sphere of influence. But of course, it was a very different situation and there's curfew. And I was meeting when the announcement was made with an activist who was just on the point of exhaustion. So she welcomed the decision, but you could just see that it felt like her joy was tempered by the amount of suffering that she's seen in the last month. And I want to go back to the Ukrainians. And Simon, you talked to some people who were displaced twice. They've been displaced uh, when the war began in 2014 or 2015 out of eastern Ukraine. And now they've been displaced from wherever they had found a home. That seems by definition to be a harrowing experience. But in talking to these people, is there anything 
that you heard that you'd like to share? One impression of talking to people who have already been displaced twice is that they already sort of had the experience how to, to be looking for a place to stay, how to approach the state for support or how to approach NGOs for support. And many um, of the people that I've spoken to with this experience actually sort of gave me a sense of routine that they were in this, had been in this before. And that I don't want to say that they've been looking down on people who have been displaced for only once, but they sort of knew already how to react to this situation a little bit better. And one woman that I've spoken to also clearly gave me a sense of how the state had changed in that span that uh, when she was displaced the first time from Donetsk to Kiev, that there were no regulations in place. There was no register for IDPs in place where, where you could register and the state would actually see you as a displaced person. And uh, now these, these institutions have been in place. They've been overwhelmed and they've been stretched to their limits, but they've been in place. There has been a legal basis for helping IDPs that define who is an IDP and, and what their rights are. And that is probably, Ukraine was very lucky to have had this uh, sort of small displacement crisis. It's not small in European measures at all, but of 1.4 million people before this invasion as a preparation for this gigantic displacement crisis that has affected the country now. Something tells me they're not feeling grateful. They're not feeling grateful at all. I mean, for having had this trial run, right? I mean, <laughs> No, they're not feeling grateful at all for having this trial run. But I think in some sense, again, having had this experience is also a bit of an empowerment. And it's not the same sense of disorientation that some other people have told me about, that they've been just completely paralyzed and didn't know how to react to the situation at all. Then they came to overcrowded places in the west of the country where they didn't have the headspace to take good decisions. So they were on overcrowded train stations with no information where the trains would go. And they often would take bad decisions and end up in risky situations or in precarious situations, whereas people with that experience probably had a better base of just making these very important decisions. I'd just add, this is totally anecdotal, of course, but one of the women who was in the train compartment with me from Ivano-Frankivsk to Kiev had gone to spend a couple of days with friends in Ivano-Frankivsk. She was from Lugansk oblast and she was displaced in 2015 and she had just managed in December to buy an apartment in Kiev. She wanted to leave. She was scared. She had a son who was autistic and so she was worried about his care in the future, thought there might be better opportunities abroad, but it had been such a struggle to arrive at the place almost eight years later where she could buy a flat in Kiev, that she wasn't willing to give that up until the fighting came to her and came to the apartment. And despite the air sirens and despite her son being particularly aggravated by them, let's say, she didn't want to leave because of that experience. So I think the idea of being displaced twice was something she was struggling really hard to avoid unless she was absolutely forced to. I was going to ask about the humanitarian response and, and having been on the ground, having seen what the situation is like in Western Ukraine, what are the key things that are needed from the humanitarian response? The key need at the moment, and pretty much everybody whom we spoke to has told us that, is housing and getting people who are in communal shelters, in sports halls, in kindergartens, in school buildings out of there and into buildings that are more suitable for them to stay for the winter. There's a lot of renovations now going on. 
Some are funded by the state, some are funded by uh, international organizations, by private donors, and often they are state buildings. So the departments of housing and urban development in Western Ukrainian regions, they have drawn up lists of buildings that are not used or underused. Often these are dormitories of schools or um, defunct factories that are now being rudimentarily renovated under a lot of time pressure because winter is looming. So often they get new piping and new flooring, but there will still be communal buildings. There are 10 or 12 people will share a kitchen. There will be communal showers in those, but they are way better than some of the remaining shelter areas that we've seen where there's just a big open hall, like a, a sports hall or the reception area of a stadium where people have no privacy at all. So these are the really pressing issues at the moment. And there's a lot of work going on. Organizations are investing in fridges and washing machines. These are something that was often a big lack in the beginning. And now we've seen an entire sports hall filled with just house technique in Drohovich, but there's no rooms yet to place them. But the people are crammed into the neighboring building and they're really waiting for these renovations going on for them to get ready to move in. And the 1st of September is the official school start date in, in all of Ukraine. So it's really a race against time. And the officials that we've spoken to said nobody's going to be kicked out of schools because we have to start school at 1st of September. But what they're going to do is squeeze people closer together. So people who are in cramped circumstances now and do not have an alternative option in September, they will be moved closer together so that some schools free up. And that would probably mean that in those places, conditions will get more precarious, especially if COVID is going to come back in the cold season. And this could also well mean that more people then decide to give leaving Ukraine another shot. I just want to add, so that's the situation with housing in Western Ukraine is quite stark in that way. But I also want to add that in areas in the east, especially in the north areas where Russian forces retreated, the ICRC are just putting in water again. They're doing food distribution. People have started to return but have completely destroyed homes, those who have returned. So in those areas, we're really talking basic needs to a large extent. So clearly, even with the recognition that this is a long haul, still a lot of infrastructure to be put in place to make it a sustainable long haul. Simon, Alyssa, thank you so much for joining us and talking about what you learned on your trip. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So to read more about Simon and Alyssa's crisis group work on Ukraine, check out our website, www.crisisgroup.org where you'll be able to find extensive coverage of the war. You can find Alyssa and Simon on Twitter as well. Alyssa is at A-D-E car and Simon is at Simon underscore Schlegel underscore. You should also follow Crisis Group and us on Twitter. Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Alyssa is at Alyssa Jobson. And I'm at Olya Olaker. You can also check us out on Facebook and Instagram, where Crisis Group is also at Crisis Group. Sadly, this was our last episode of the series. We'll be taking a short break from podcasts through the rest of July and August before coming back in September with more expert guests from Crisis Group and beyond to bring you interesting conversations on a wide range of topics. If you've enjoyed this podcast or have any suggestions for topics or guests for the next series, 
do give us a shout out on Twitter or wherever you are online. You can also email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. And of course, we'd love it if you could leave a rating and a review as well. And we are really looking forward to coming back for another season and giving you more news including about Ukraine with perspectives from within the country and from the many folks watching it from outside like we are. War and Peace is a partner in a network of podcasts about Europe, Europod, and you should check out the others as well. A big thanks to producer Bull Media and to our coordinators, Finn Dunbar-Johnson and Alex Figursky. But the biggest thanks, as always, go to you, our listeners. We are very much looking forward to talking to you more next season. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.